Since its identification in Brazil in May 2015, the Zika virus has spread rapidly throughout South and Central America. Although the infection appears to be mild or asymptomatic in most people, it has been linked with neurologic illnesses and congenital microcephaly. In the affected countries, the spread of the virus has reached alarming proportions. I'm Dr. Diane Kelsall, Deputy Editor for CMAJ, and today I'm speaking with Dr. Derek McFadden, Infectious Diseases Physician practicing at the University Health Network in Toronto, as well as Doctoral Student in Infectious Disease Epidemiology at the Harvard Chan School of Public Health in Boston. Dr. McFadden is here to tell us what we need to know about the Zika virus. He is the co-author of a practice article published in the CMAJ. Thank you so much for joining me today. Thank you so much for uh, having me this afternoon. Every news outlet seems to be carrying articles on the Zika virus now. Did this virus just suddenly appear out of nowhere? Where did it come from? So this virus actually uh, didn't just appear out of uh, nowhere. It was actually first identified uh, in the late 40s um, in Uganda, in the Zika forest uh, region, which is how it got its name. And then after that, there was a number of cases uh, kind of sporadically throughout parts of Africa and Asia. And then more recently, uh, really within the last decade, we've seen movement of the virus outside of Asia. It's caused a number of outbreaks in Pacific islands. And then that brings us to uh, kind of really the last year. Since May of 2015, we've uh, seen spread in South America, Central America, and now Mexico and the Caribbean, all really starting off in Brazil uh, with initial cases in May uh, 2015. Why is it spreading so rapidly and, and how is it spread? So this virus is an arbovirus, so it's an arthropod-borne virus. It's spread through a vector, uh, the Aedes uh, mosquito, most notably the Aedes aegypti uh, mosquito. Now, so these mosquitoes, they bite an infected uh, individual, and then uh, they take in some of the blood, including the Zika virus, and then are transmitted to other individuals upon uh, biting them. And so really, it's the spread of this virus is highly dependent upon the mosquito uh, population. We know that this Aedes aegypti um, is uh, really distributed through really large swaths of the Americas. So there's a great potential here for significant spread of this virus. And we've already and we've, we've seen that with the number of countries that uh, have been involved. Now, is there a sense that certain people are at increased risk of infection and hence of transmitting infection if bitten by a mosquito? We, we know in general, uh, the infection itself from a severity standpoint is usually fairly mild. In terms of individuals just acquiring the infection in general, probably some of the greatest risk factors are going to be proximity to breeding populations of mosquitoes. And uh, we know that this mosquito breeds in water-filled containers, vessels, uh, including tires and buckets. Uh, so proximity to the mosquito is going to uh, certainly uh, alter your risk of becoming infected or not. Certainly there are things people can do to try to avoid mosquito bites, including the clothes that they wear, long sleeve shirts, uh, pants, uh, using uh, bug repellent and definitely using mosquito nets, especially for individuals who are sleeping uh, or uh, not moving during daylight hours, which is when the mosquito likes to bite. In terms of severity of the infection and if there's any risk factors for having increased severity, again, it's generally, uh, with some exceptions, including the potential uh, fetal involvement, it's generally a, a pretty mild illness. There have been some reports of individuals with uh, comorbidities having very severe disease, but it's probably uh, more of a uh, Zika causing a perturbation of their underlying uh, comorbidity. 
Now, you mentioned that it's a fairly mild infection, so in, in mm-hmm. most. So what, what mm-hmm. are the symptoms? So the symptoms of the infection, interestingly, the most common symptom would, would likely be nothing because uh, we know the majority of individuals who are infected are, in fact, uh, asymptomatic. For those who are symptomatic, there are fairly, I'll call them nonspecific infectious symptoms, including fever, uh, rash. Some will have arthralgias. Uh, joint pain and uh, conjunctivitis. But the symptoms themselves are unfortunately not uh, great at helping us differentiate this infection from others. So what else would be in the differential diagnosis, let's say if a patient were coming from an area where the Zika, we know the Zika virus is is around? Mm. So whenever you're considering a differential from a fever in the tropics, you definitely want to first always consider things that they could have acquired elsewhere, or I call these kind of non-tropical infections. And these are kind of your run-of-the-mill community-acquired infections, which most practitioners be familiar with, uh, you know, your respiratory tract infections, including influenza, UTI, skin and soft tissue infections. And then you want to consider your the tropical infections. Uh, we always say that uh, anybody coming back from the tropics with fever, it's prudent to rule out malaria because of the severity of infection it can cause. So we always have to have that on the differential diagnosis. Another common uh, cause of fever from South America, Central America, Caribbean would be uh, diarrheal diseases. But then kind of <laughs> to round that out and really bring us to the focus um, is uh, Zika as a possibility. And in the other two viral etiologies, which are going to look a lot like Zika, this includes uh, chikungunya and dengue. And coincidentally enough, they're also spread by uh, the same vector. So it's really difficult to, to differentiate these uh, based on clinical symptoms alone. But you definitely need to consider all three in your differential diagnosis. So then how would we make the diagnosis? So the way you make the diagnosis, it depends where you are. Certainly in a lot of the involved countries uh, in South America, Central America, Caribbean and Mexico, uh, they don't have laboratory diagnostics to do that. And so a lot of the presumed diagnoses are based on uh, the syndrome. But as we, as I noted, uh, it can be difficult to differentiate it from dengue and, and uh, chikungunya. Now, for us, uh, there are in developed countries that have the resources, we have really two options. Uh, one is PCR-based methods, which are really work to identify the virus uh, RNA within your blood. So you need to be in a period where you're viremic, which is typically within generally five to seven days of symptom onset. However, uh, depending upon the reference laboratory, uh, they may do the PCR up to within up to 10 days. The second aspect of uh, testing is uh, the availability of serology. And this is not really useful within the first few days after onset of symptoms because you've yet to generate an adequate antibody response. However, around four to five days after infection, then you can start to find uh, these antibodies for Zika. And so really, it's you have the PCR and the serology that you can use to help you make the diagnosis. My advice for physicians generally is to talk with your local reference laboratory, which is generally uh, the provincial labs, um, and they'll tell you exactly which specimens to send. And depending upon how you, you can note the time from infection start, then they'll send it for the appropriate uh, testing. And these usually actually will end up getting sent to the NML and the serology for the most part looks to be going to the CDC. But if you talk with your reference laboratory, they'll be able to tell you uh, to help you actually uh, send the samples. Roughly how long does it take before the results of those tests would come back? 
So it depends on the the demand for the serology. Uh, it's typically taken on the order of uh, weeks to get the results back. The PCR will depend upon how frequently uh, NML is is running the the test and uh, the time it takes for it to get to that laboratory. So it's it's you're unlikely to get the diagnosis very fast. Now it'll. That kind of brings us to treatment options and whether that impacts on treatment. And since we know that there's there's really no specific treatment for uh, Zika apart from supportive care, not having that diagnosis right away probably has uh, less impact on how you manage the patient. But certainly you do want to consider it and, and know whether on your differential be able to rule it out as a possible cause. So it actually won't affect the treatment or the clinical course. What is the usual clinical course? How long will people be symptomatic with this sort of mild infection? So the the incubation period, which is the time from infection to symptom onset, varies uh, anywhere from 2 to 12 days, roughly. Once the symptoms start, they generally last less than a week. They're typically mild, and uh, very rarely do individuals have severe complications, although there is now this uh, potential link to fetal uh, neurologic complications. So can you tell us a little bit about that aspect? Mm -hmm. Since the start of this outbreak, um, uh, there's been an observation that the cases of fetal microcephaly in involved countries seem to have uh, increased. Now, we're dealing with still very small uh, absolute numbers, but uh, on a relative scale, they've potentially gone up up 20-fold. Um, and it's been hypothesized that the Zika virus could be uh, the cause of the spike in uh, microcephaly cases. There has been uh, some evidence to support that. We know that uh, the same PCR testing done on placental tissue of uh, microcephalic infants, as well as uh, some fetal tissue, has demonstrated the presence of Zika virus in, in a few cases. So this has uh, supported that potential link. There was some concern initially over how the, the microcephaly was being classified in, in these uh, involved countries. And so we don't know for sure exactly how many infants truly have uh, microcephaly, although there's, this is an ongoing area of research and investigation, and we're starting to get a little bit more information now. Um, and with the same studies, looking at these uh, microcephalic infants are evaluating whether they can find further evidence of uh, presence of the virus, which would better support the concept that uh, Zika is causing this microcephaly. So given that information, what mm -hmm. should we be telling, if I have a patient who comes in, a pregnant patient or a person who's not pregnant, who's planning to travel, I mean, a lot of people have vacations booked mm -hmm. to affected areas, you know, in the next month, should these people be going? And, and if so, I mean, you've mentioned some precautions, but I guess the first question is, should mm -hmm. they actually be going? A lot of public health uh, agencies and groups have uh, put out statements uh, regarding this. Because of this potential for uh, fetal complications, including uh, fetal microcephaly, most bodies have recommended that um, women who are or could become pregnant uh, during their travel really should uh, consider not going, essentially. And this, again, is related to the risk of potential risk of microcephaly. And to add to this, you know, a number of countries who uh, have have ongoing uh, transmission have even suggested to their own uh, citizens that they uh, consider delaying uh, any plans for uh, pregnancy as well. So really, you know, in keeping with the recommendations, if you are pregnant or could become pregnant, then they should really consider avoiding travel to involved areas.
Now, for other uh, people who this doesn't apply to, the risks of Zika virus are fairly low. And so uh, there's no advisories in, with respect to uh, travel for them. The, there are certain things you can do to try to prevent uh, mosquito bites and thus uh, help prevent uh, acquiring the virus. And those are you know pretty simple uh, things, but uh, where, again, wearing pants, long sleeve shirts, using mosquito uh, repellent, and also uh, using bug nets. So if I had a, a, a pregnant patient of mine or mm-hmm. a person who got a, a woman who got pregnant on her vacation in one of these areas, she comes back yeah. with a fever. Yeah. Well, you mentioned already that obviously it takes a long time for the Zika results to come back, serology or, or PCR results to come back. But would this be a case in which I would definitely want to send off some specimens? Absolutely. You know, if you have a patient who was pregnant or uh, was pregnant or became pregnant while uh, in an involved country, then I would definitely further evaluate this uh, patient. Now, there are have been some actually interim guidelines released by the CDC on how exactly how to evaluate these patients. There's somewhat complicated, but I would definitely recommend that if whoever's in this scenario uh, consults these interim guidelines. What it boils down to is both assessing uh, whether the individual has had evidence of Zika infection and then also assessing uh, fetal health uh, which is and fetal neurologic status, which is typically done through uh, fetal ultrasound. Now, these are guidelines that are available online uh, through the CDC, but definitely anyone who's been there and uh, was pregnant or became pregnant while there uh, should be uh, further, uh, further evaluated. So just one last question. Obviously, the early days yet, but is there a vaccine in the works for this? So um, unfortunately, uh, there hasn't been uh, any vaccines at advanced stages of study to date. This was kind of more in contrast to the Ebola vaccine. So there's really nothing that they can we can readily uh, try to use right now. Now, there have been vaccines uh, in the works for uh, dengue and West Nile virus, and some have been developed. And so because they belong to the same family of virus, it's hopeful that they may be able to apply the same uh, techniques to uh, develop a Zika virus vaccine. Uh, and the NIH has uh, highlighted this, NIH in the U.S. has highlighted this as a major focus for them. Um, however, admittedly, to actually get to a point where they would have a viable vaccine for use on a large scale is going to take uh, years, really. Uh, so it's unlikely that a vaccine will be developed and become available uh, to impact on the current outbreak that's occurring. The other point I would raise is that uh, this is just related to uh, preparation for travel. In addition to the consideration about Zika and uh, especially around pregnant or women who could could become pregnant, um, I would just want to remind people that a lot of these countries that have uh, Zika also have uh, other potentially dangerous uh, infections, including uh, malaria, and that getting free travel consultation, free travel advice from a physician is uh, important for a lot of these patients to make sure that they're protected from not only Zika virus, but also a number of the other possible uh, infections that they could acquire when traveling. A very important point. Thanks so much, Derek, for joining me. Great. Thank you so much for having me. I've been speaking with Dr. Derek McFadden. To read the practice article he co-authored, visit cmaj.ca.